Well, if you have a Bible, uh, please turn to the sixth chapter of Romans. I've just had uh, two cataract surgeries, and as a result, I have reading glasses now. And this is the first time I've had to speak. Uh, I usually have glasses on, but I don't have them anymore. However, as I, as I look out, uh, it's, it's painfully obvious that all of you missed the memo about the dress code for this morning. I don't know how that happened. I asked Brad to send that out, get word to you, but uh, apparently the word did not get out. But anyway, <laughs> y'all are good? All right. <laughs> um, this morning we're going to, uh, to look, obviously, at Romans chapter 6. And uh, years ago, I read a book that, uh, that shaped my thinking, and it was a book by Lane Adams. At that time, he was one of the associate evangelists with Billy Graham, and he wrote a book called, Lord, How Come It's Taking Me So Long to Get Better? And uh, obviously, in that book, he was struggling with the reality that you struggle with and that I struggle with, and that is, once, uh, once I give my life to Christ, and the very life of God resides in me, uh, why is it that I struggle to honor Him and please Him and obey Him and serve Him? What is this uh, tension that seems to, uh, to persist in my life as a person who would want to, to give myself uh, to the God who loved me so? And so there was, uh, there was ex just great help for me in that book. And I wanted to begin this morning with an illustration that Lane Adams uses in that book. And it's an illustration that comes out of World War II, and particularly uh, in the Pacific Theater. And the war in the Pacific against the Japanese was largely a war that was fought on various islands. And the, uh, the account that Lane Adams uses is one of of uh, envisioning a, a contingency of Marines who land on one of these islands. And when they land, they establish a little beachhead, just a little perimeter on the beach of that island. But something unusual happens at that point. As soon as they've established that perimeter, as soon as that, uh, that beachhead is in place, they radio back to the command ship these words, the island is taken. Now, in all probability, a shot hadn't been fired. The enemy probably hasn't even been seen yet. And yet the Marines, in absolute confidence, radio back to their headquarters on the ship. Uh, this island is taken. But from that point on, uh, the actual warfare begins because they have to make forays into the, into the jungles and the mountains of those islands and defeat the enemy and divest the enemy of their power uh, to threaten and to attack and, and to harm. One of the other sidebars to that story is that when those Japanese soldiers were deposited on those islands by their commanders, they were told to uh, fight until they died. They were told never to give up. And so, uh, as the war raged from 1941 until 1945, um, and as those islands became the focus of, 
of uh, the, the attempt on the part of Americans and others to subdue, uh, there was intense opposition from the Japanese soldiers that were entrenched on those islands. Well, in, in 1945, in August, you may be aware that uh, two bombs were drop, drop, dropped on southern Japan and Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki. And uh, later in August, that led to the Japanese surrender. After the surrender, uh, leaflets were uh, flown and, and distributed over those islands to alert the Japanese soldiers to the fact that uh, their country had surrendered. But when those Japanese soldiers got those leaflets announcing that uh, Japan had surrendered, they thought it was a trick. They, uh, they thought it was uh, an attempt to deceive them. Uh, some uh, some uh, strategy on the part of the Americans to, uh, to precipitate their surrender. But they were unwilling to do that. They kept fighting. As a matter of fact, the last Japanese soldier to surrender did so in 1974. 29 years after the war was over, he wandered out of the jungle and surrendered. Uh, but the, the picture is one of an enemy who wouldn't believe that they'd been defeated and who continued to attack and who continued to try uh, everything that they could to defeat uh, the presence of the American and Allied soldiers uh, who were already victorious. Lane Adams uses this picture, this imagery, uh, as a way of uh, helping us to understand the Christian life. Uh, your life, as it were, is an island. And when you become a Christian, Jesus Christ establishes a beachhead in your life. He establishes uh, His presence and His authority. And at that moment, there is, uh, there's no confusion about the ultimate implications of His presence. He is going to completely subdue the island of your life to His presence, to His authority. Uh, he's going to be at work to, uh, to make His forays into the various aspects and dimensions of your life and one by one bring them into uh, submission to Him as your, as your sovereign, as your monarch, as your king. But the, uh, the reality is that uh, the enemy still thinks he can win. Satan is, uh, is convinced that he can still carry the day, even though the reality is that he is ultimately and, and absolutely defeated. His abdication came at the cross. He was publicly and, and dramatically defeated. And as Christ enters into your life and establishes his presence in your life, uh, one would think that that would mean that, uh, that your life would, uh, would, uh, would rally around his authority and be lived out in, in uninterrupted worship and honor of him. But that's not the case because the enemy, like those Japanese soldiers, uh, thinks that, uh, that the reality of their defeat is propaganda. Uh, and so they continue. The enemy continues. To, uh, to try to sabotage and to uh, destroy the work of God in our lives. Uh, there's a quote that I have from John Owen that uh, I think will be... Yeah. Need to go. 
I think we'll be coming. Yeah. Uh, I didn't give them a script, so there might be a little lag between, uh, between my talking and, and the, what's on the screen. But listen to what John Owen said. John Owen was a, uh, a theologian. He was a, um, a Puritan. Uh, lived uh, most of the 1600s, um, from 1616 to 1683. But he said, when Christ comes with his spiritual power upon the soul to conquer it to himself, he hath no quiet uh, landing place. He can set foot upon no ground but what he must fight for. John Owen was uh, expressing in, in his own words uh, what Lane Adams uh, depicted in, in that uh, imagery of an island. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. There is uh, the reality of, of these two experiences that seem incompatible with each other, that Christ could be present in my life, and yet at the same time I could struggle so to, uh, to love Him and serve Him, to obey Him. And Romans chapter 6 uh, gives perspective on, on why that is the case and gives perspective on how God works in our lives to, uh, as it were, uh, move into the interior of the island of my life and your life once Christ is present and begin to, uh, to defeat the enemy in his entrenched influence over aspects of, of my life. And we want to look at that uh, from Romans chapter 6. And the first thing on the outline there is the question that Paul is addressing. And uh, that uh, question begins in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, we read, uh, The law came along to multiply the trespass. But where sin is multiplied, grace multiplied, grace is multiplied even more. Uh, as he ends the, his thoughts with those words, uh, you have here a picture of, of sin being uh, multiplied. How did sin multiply? Well, when God began to define what it was that was offensive to him, when he gave the Ten Commandments, when he gave other commands that outlined and sensitized men and women, to uh, what it was that was offensive to him and rebellious against him and was disobedient to him, that very definition indicated to people that it was clear now where they were uh, rebelling against him and against his authority. So they became much more conscious of the specifics and the details of how they were displeasing God. And so their sense of sinfulness began to, uh, to grow and, and to multiply as they recognized that attitudes and actions and behaviors and desires were at odds with God's will and His, His purpose and His commands. But Paul says as he ends chapter 5 that at the same time that, that men and women became more conscious in specific ways of how they were offending a holy God, the grace of God was present in even more abundance to assure them of His love and forgiveness. 
And so in stating that, uh, what Paul is doing is really just uh, giving you a synopsis of the whole Old Testament. Because the whole Old Testament is a picture of men and women as God's revelation of himself and his laws and what it meant to have a relationship as his revelation of that proceeded, men became more and more evidently rebellious against him and more and more conscious of their alienation from him. But at the same time, they were, they were reminded time after time of God's love and forgiveness, of how he would uh, discipline them and then bring them back of how he would, uh, would allow them to suffer the consequences of their rebellion against him, and then he would, he would tug on their hearts and draw them back into a relationship with himself. That's really the whole picture of the Old Testament. But as Paul introduces uh, what he says in the sixth chapter of Romans, he's aware that uh, someone could mistake that, uh, that reality of the more we disobey God and displease him, uh, there's the assurance that there is, there is forgiveness and acceptance available from him that will, will outdo any of the, uh, the expressions of rebellion against him that might, that might be uh, rooted in our hearts or our behavior. And Paul says uh, in, uh, in the first two verses of chapter 6 and also in verse 15, uh, what should we say, say then? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may multiply. Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Uh, Paul uh, says, and he says essentially the same thing in the 15th verse, that uh, it is inconceivable that we would presume upon the goodness, the grace, the forgiveness, the acceptance of God, and persist in living in a way that brought dishonor to His name that was an affront to his nature and character. And so Paul is going to go on now through the sixth chapter to, uh, to talk about why that is true, why it's inconceivable that someone who has Christ living in their life would, uh, would feel that they could presume upon God's grace and his mercy and his forgiveness by, by continuing to, to sin to rebel against him, to disobey him, uh, feeling all along that, uh, well, God will forgive me. And it's that uh, that Dietrich Bonhoeffer referred to as cheap grace that, uh, that Paul is, is going to address. And so uh, the first thing that, uh, that he tells us uh, in point two, all right, we are coordinated and writing this great. Um, the first answer that uh, Paul gives has to do with the analogy of baptism. And he talks about uh, how in, in Christian baptism, uh, the, the dimensions of our relationship with Christ are illustrated. Now, baptism is an interesting word. It uh, comes from uh, the dying profession. I'm not talking about funeral directors at this point, but I'm talking about uh, tradesmen and uh, and those that were in, in business in the, in the Greek world, uh, particularly those who uh, bought and sold fabric. And that word to baptize was actually a, uh, a word that was used as a, as a technical term in that trade 
to describe what would happen when you would take some cloth and you would dip it into a vat of dye. Uh, obviously, when you, when you dip that cloth or immerse that cloth in that dye and bring it out, what happens? That cloth takes on the characteristics of that dye. If it's blue dye, now you have blue cloth. If it's purple dye, now you have purple cloth. And so to baptize something was, was first of all, to immerse it in, a, in another uh, element, and secondly, to, uh, to recognize that uh, in doing that, there was a, uh, an indication of the nature of that dye now expressed through that cloth. There was, uh, as I mentioned there, identification. And so you have in, in this description, uh, as Paul talks about why it is that Christians should live in, in a relationship with their God that uh, is less and less characterized by rebellion against Him and by disobedience to Him, he says that, uh, that your baptism pictures a reality that, uh, that has implications for how we live. Uh, this passage is not really about baptism. It's about the second sort of dimension of that word's meaning, and that is identification. That, that a person who has become a Christian becomes so identified with Christ that just as that cloth was identified with that dye and came out uh, manifesting and displaying the characteristics of that dye, when you and I are identified with Christ, we, uh, we come out of that identification uh, beginning to evidence the characteristics of His very life. And that's why, as, as you look at Romans chapter 6 in, uh, in verse 4, um, we read these words, Therefore, we have been buried with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. That, uh, that way of life, the next verse goes on to say, is a certainty. It is absolutely certain that those of us who have been identified with Christ, who have come into a relationship with Him, will begin to live uh, demonstrating and expressing through what we think and what we feel and how we behave in life and in relationships, we'll be a, uh, expressing His very nature, His very characteristics. And Paul says that is a certainty. And it's a certainty that should bring great confidence to us. If you have been identified with Christ, then the reality of who Christ is and the reality of the resurrection power of His life at work in you and in me uh, brings certainty to the, fact, to the fact that my life is going to uh, change and more and more bear the characteristics of His very life. My thinking, what I feel, my affections, my choices are going to be uh, expressing His very nature and life. And that's the, uh, the beauty of this identification. It's, uh, it's an identification that, that focuses on 
this whole area of, of my union with him and his death and, life and, and burial and resurrection uh, as, as expressed through baptism is just a picture. And Paul is saying that uh, that picture ought to, to bring great confidence to us. The second thing, though, is, uh, is just to look at the results of, of what that identification implies. And that's in verse 6. If you, if you look in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 6, verse 6, um, here's, here's what we read. For we know that our old self, that is all that we were apart from Jesus Christ before we met him, that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the, my, my body may be abolished so that the law may no longer uh, enslave me. Um, Paul is saying here that uh, as a result of my union with Christ, something has happened to that old nature that I was born into this life with and that I lived under the influence of until that point in time when I became a Christian. What is the nature of what God has done to that old nature? That's the question Paul is addressing here in verse 6. And unfortunately, a number of the translations uh, are not helpful here. The King James says that, uh, that this old nature has been um, destroyed. Well, if it's been destroyed, it certainly uh, seems to exert influence over me uh, in the present. How can it be destroyed? Uh, any sense that that nature was annihilated, that it was abolished, um, that in any way um, that nature was, uh, was dealt with uh, by Christ and by his death and burial and resurrection in a way that it can no longer have influence over me uh, is, is not a, a good understanding of what Paul is saying here. Uh, that word should be translated um, that it's rendered powerless. Uh, the uh, One translation says it's neutralized uh, in terms of its capacity to continue to influence me in an inordinate and controlling way. It has been made ineffective. It has no power over us. Those are more of the, uh, the nuances of what Paul is getting at here. That that old nature has been uh, dealt with in such a way that never again, never again can it enslave me to, uh, to its influence. But that's not to say that it can't have influence over me. And that's the, that's the thing that Paul is, is at pains to say here, is that once the new nature that I have in Christ is deposited in me, um, that old nature, like those Japanese soldiers on those islands, uh, had to be uh, sought out and defeated and, uh, and, and dispossessed of their, their ability to harm or injure, to attack or to... Uh, somehow try to destroy um, God's work in me. The, uh, 
the appeal that Paul makes is one that is um, helpful and one that is, uh, is so strategic. Uh, he does two things. He says, first of all, you need to consider, and that word is a present participle. It, uh, uh, it means you need to keep on and constantly be considering something. And then you, be, you need to begin to make choices in response to what you're considering. Now, there's an interesting word here in, uh, in the King James Version, uh, in verse 11 of chapter 6. It says that you're to reckon. Now, I was born in the South, and if I talked to one of my buddies and said, uh, Billy, uh, how about let's go on fishing Saturday? Well, I reckon so. Uh, good Southern language, to reckon. I reckon I'll do that. I reckon that's okay. Uh, in, in southern vernacular, that means to think about something or to guess at something. And uh, obviously Paul is not, uh, is not talking about when he says that uh, we need to consider ourselves dead to sin but alive to Christ. Uh, he's not talking about let's just have some guessing about that or let's kind of think about that uh, in some superficial way. When he says consider... Uh, he's talking about uh, allowing the reality of something to settle over my mind and my heart and my will in such a way that every day, every moment of every day, I'm aware of and I'm reflecting upon what is really true of me. Uh, to consider, uh, that was a term that uh, biblically means to... Uh, to continually reflect on something, to see yourself as, uh, as God sees you. The truest thing about you is what God says about you. And what God has to say about you in terms of your living in a relationship with Him and the power and authority of that relationship uh, to, to enable you to, to proceed in life in a way that pleases him is what Paul is calling us to reflect on, to, to consider, uh, to calculate and estimate, constantly be considering the reality of who I am in Christ. That's what defines me. That's what uh, is definitive about who Ricky Mill is, is what God says is true of me. I may feel a number of things about myself. I may feel uh, ashamed. I may feel trapped by some addictive pattern of behavior that's controlling and compulsive. I may feel uh, like a failure. But none of those are true of me. What's true of me is what God has to say about me. And what Paul is, is appealing for in verse 11 is that the reality of, of who I am in Christ, the reality of the, the fact that Christ lives in me, in God's very, very nature, uh, longs to be expressed through me, and His power longs to be available to me to live in a way that pleases Him. That's something we need to be thinking about. Uh, it's interesting, this word to consider is actually a kind of a banking term. It's to uh, literally to put to your own account. 
Uh, it's kind of like making a deposit in your bank account. And what Paul's saying is what God has to say about you in a, in a contemporary vernacular, you can take that to the bank. That check will cash. You can, uh, you can count on that. Now, if I went to uh, your bank tomorrow morning, and first of all, I have no capacity to do this, nor, nor uh, will I, but if I went to your bank Monday morning and I deposited in your account a million dollars, I would change your identity instantly. Now you're a millionaire. Yesterday you were living in poverty and trying to eke out some kind of an existence in this life. Now you're a millionaire. Your identity has been changed. But even though I did that for you, uh, you may continue to live as though you had no resources. You could continue to, uh, to live in a way that wouldn't reflect the reality of uh, what actually characterizes you now. And that's what Paul has in mind here. That God has, through our identification with Christ, the reality has so changed us that we are, we are different because of that, uh, that relationship with Christ. And yet we continue to live in spiritual poverty, though we have the resources of heaven available to us on a momentary basis. And so Paul is, is saying, consider, think about, uh, reflect on, calculate who you are. And don't let that get out of your mind. Every day, in every experience of life, you consider who you really are. You're a son or a daughter of the king of the universe. You know, we establish the value of anything by the price we pay for it. God pray, paid an infinite price for your life. You can hardly be an insignificant person. You can hardly be someone who uh, has to eke out a, a, a poverty-stricken spiritual existence of uh, abdicating to that other nature. God calls you, because of who you are in Christ, to live in a way that expresses and, uh, and demonstrates the reality of, of who you really are. Uh, the second thing he says is uh, that we need to choose, in verses 12 to 14. Inherent in, in all of those verses is the uh, implication that you and I can, uh, can choose to act upon what we know to be true. And if I'm thinking about who I am in Christ, and I'm conscious of that, sensitized to that, I can choose to live out that existence. Um, really for the first time, before you became a Christian, you had no choice. You just had to be a pagan. You just had to live under the influence of your selfish nature. Living in self-sufficiency and independence, you're the center of your universe all of that, but once you are identified with Christ in the language of Romans 6, once you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ for the first time in your life, you can choose not to give into or to pursue what, uh, what you're being drawn to, to give into by that defeated enemy who has no authority and no capacity to re-enslave you to his way of life. And so Paul is, uh, is appealing to us to, 
to choose. I put a passage in the outline, Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24. And, and that's just one place where Paul uses the imagery of, uh, of taking off some clothing that is, uh, that is offensive to a holy God. That clothing representing choices and uh, decisions that I make to rebel against him. And Paul talks about just in the imagery of changing clothes that you take off that stuff and you put on the very nature of God and begin to live in, in the repercussions of the reality of that nature. But the, the implication there again is that's something you can do. Now, I'm not talking about self-effort. Um, in the book of Philippians, Paul says that God is at work in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. God is the one who, who gives you the desire and the actual ability to please him. But you have to choose, I have to choose to uh, avail myself of the life of God in me and the call of God upon me. And the good news is I can because I'm a believer, because I have that identity with Christ. And I'm now characterized by what characterizes him. I can choose to obey God and to please him and to serve him. Uh, in the book of Ephesians, you have a, a passage that is in Ephesians chapter 6 and actually on the outline that I'm sure is right above me in the back there. I'm confident. We're on subpoint point 2 um, where it says uh, verses 12, 11 and 12, that should be actually under Ephesians 6, 13. Uh, verses 11 and 12 talk about uh, the nature of our enemy and the nature of our, our uh, battle against him. But then uh, verse 13 talks about putting on God's armor. Uh, I've been reading a book uh, called A Gospel Primer for Christians by Milton Vincent. And it's a great little book. And what it uh, advocates, as a matter of fact, he goes through 32 reasons why a Christian should preach the gospel to himself or herself every day, that you should remind yourself of the gospel. And uh, in treating that subject, one of the entries, one of the 31 reasons uh, that Christians should preach the gospel to themselves is, uh, is his reflection on uh, this passage in Ephesians 6, uh, which talks about putting on the full armor of God. He says the Bible tells us to take up or to put on the whole armor of God, and the pieces of the armor, it tells us that we must put on are all merely synonyms for the gospel. Translated literally from the Greek, they are the salvation, the justification, truth, the gospel of peace, the faith, and the word of God. What are all these expressions but various ways of describing the gospel? Now here's what I want you to see. He says... Uh, that God would tell me to take up or to put on this gospel armor alerts me to the fact that I do not automatically come into each day protected by the gospel. In fact, these commands imply that I am vulnerable to defeat and injury unless I seize upon the gospel and arm myself with it from head to toe. And what better way is there to do this than to preach the gospel to myself and to make it the obsession of my heart throughout the day? Uh, when, when Paul says you need to put on this armor, you need to consider the gospel. 
and the implications of the reality of that union with Christ, that identification with Him. Uh, what he's saying is that uh, if you don't put those, if you don't make the choices to do that, to remind yourself and to consider and to be uh, aware of and attentive to the reality of who you are in Christ, uh, you're defeated before you ever get out of bed, before you ever go into the day. A passage that I love is James chapter 4, verse 7. And uh, in that passage, James says, uh, Submit to God. Place your life at His disposal. And then he says, Resist the devil. A lot of us uh, go through the submission. We wake up in the morning, we pray a little bit, we may read our Bible, uh, we may ask God to... Uh, to to be uh, the centerpiece of our life for the day. But then as we go through the day, I know personally the challenge comes when, when I am attacked by one of those uh, enemy soldiers that didn't get the word or didn't believe the word that, you know, the war's over and he's defeated and he comes at me full force and I don't resist. I don't stop and consider, hey, who am I? What are, the, what are the implications of the fact that I have been identified with Christ and what characterizes Him now characterizes me? His very nature lives in me. To, to submit myself to Him, essential and foundational and wonderful, but then as I go out into life each day, uh, I'm going to be called upon time and again to resist yet another attack of the enemy to try to destroy the life of God in me. The good news is he can never do that. The good news is, try as he may, he can never destroy the life of God in me. That life, uh, the island is taken. My life belongs to God and will for eternity. But God would have me to consider who I am and to choose, constantly choose to resist that enemy who continues to labor under the illusion that they can win when in fact they can't. Well, I trust this uh, image of Romans chapter 6 will be helpful to you. And it basically comes down to, uh, to those two words, to consider and to choose. And that's the life of the believer. Nothing uh, magical, uh, nothing instantaneous, it's an everyday, moment-by-moment, recalling and considering and reflecting on the reality of who I am and then to choose to exercise that reality in the presence of the attack of the enemy who in his, his delusion feels like he can still sabotage the work of God in my life and yours. He can't. We have a prayer that... Uh, I think it's going to be on the screen. There it is. And I want to read through that, and then we're going to pray that as we conclude. Um, here's, uh, and you can just read along with me uh, silently. Oh, my Lord, how can I live a morally indifferent life as if little has changed? Grace forbids it because the life of grace is 
is a life of profound spiritual union with you, my crucified, buried, and risen head. You have taught me to expect new holiness to emerge from within my character. For the life of grace includes sanctification no less than justification. After all, you rose just as much as you died and were buried. So how could your grace fall, uh, fail uh, to lift me to a new life? O risen Lord, uh, raise me up in newness of life. Let my justification bear fruit in my sanctification. Make your grace for me not an excuse for sin, but a power for obedience. I earnestly pray in your holy name. Amen.